The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, time travel washing machine that replaces dirty clothes with their clean versions from back in time, outlawed by Twitter and Facebook. Just because. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have an interview with Eric Flint, Gorg Huff, and Paula Goodlett discussing the Macedonian Hazard. This is a follow-up book to The Alexander Inheritance, and it takes place in the same basic universe as Eric Flint's alternate history Ring of Fire series. But in this timeline, an enormous cruise ship has been thrown back in time to the Mediterranean in the period just after the death of Alexander the Great. There are some fascinating uptime and downtime characters and stories, and Eric, Gorg, and Paula will tell us all about it. And we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. To honor the publication of The Macedonian Hazard, Bain eBooks has big discounts this month on several Eric Flint time-twisting series. This month, we have $2 off The Alexander Inheritance by Eric Flint, Gorghoff, and Paula Goodlett. This is the prequel to The Macedonian Hazard, plus we have $1 off Time Spike, which is part of the series, by Eric Flint and Marilyn Kosmatska. And we have January discounts on the complete Arcane America series, co-created by Eric Flint. $2 off Council of Fire by Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt and a dollar off Uncharted by Kevin J. Anderson and Sarah A. Hoyt, and Collar of Lightning by Peter J. Wax and Eitan Kalin. It's the Twisted Time January ebook sale. These discounts apply wherever Bain ebooks are sold. Hey, the January e-arcs are here. Now, an e-arc is the snap and the leg crease of a newly ironed pair of pants. When you use one of those fancy non-Euclidean irons from the fancy shops, no, 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 an eARC is not that. An eARC is an electronic advanced reader copy of a book. It's an ebook version of the galleys, and we will sell it to you in all its unproofread glory, but months in advance. So you can get your favorite series or try a new author long before all of the masses can get it themselves. We offer you the chance to be the mass at the start of the critical reaction as it were anyway out now in new york is rich man's sky by will mccarthy when billionaires control the space program where does that leave the rest of us space a tycoon's playground the dreams of a handful of trillionaires dictate the future of humanity now an international team of elite military women masquerading as space colonists are set to infiltrate and neutralize the largest and most dangerous project in human history and now out in New York is 1636 Calabar's War, Break the Chains of Cruel Dominion. Domingo Fernandez Calabar started out as a military advisor for the Portuguese in Brazil, but now he's working for the Dutch to strike at Portuguese and Spanish interests on land and sea. But when bitter personal enemies put Calabar's family in chains, he has a choice to make. Help the Dutch and end slavery in time, or save his wife and children now. Ultimately, this is not just Calabar's fight. This is Calabar's war. 1636 Calabar's War by Eric Flint and Charles E. Gannon and Rich Man's Sky by Will McCarthy are now available exclusively at Bain.com as eARCs. So check them out. Hey, want to welcome Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett, and Gork Huff to the podcast. Hi, folks. Hi. Hi. We can talk a little bit about it. Eric Flint hi. is a hi, Eric. <laughs> Eric Flint is a modern master of alternate history fiction and science fiction and fantasy, 
Uh, with the three million plus books in print, he's the author and creator of the multiple New York Times bestselling Ring of Fire series, starting with first novel 1632 and umpteen million after that, that, um, that um, explore this amazing concept he came up with. And also the Queen of the Seas subseries, I believe is what we're calling the one we're going to talk about. Um, that includes the Alexandria inheritance in the book we're going to talk about soon. He's also the co-author of numerous science fiction fantasy books uh, and series, including uh, some in the uh, Honorverse with David Weber, those uh, Crown of Slave books and a whole lot of other stuff. Uh, Paula Goodlett retired. Uh, Eric uh, was a, I always like to add that he was a labor union activist and uh, lives near Chicago. Um, just to Make sure that we put the salt in Eric's personality. For, for all these so, um, Paula Goodlett retired from the military as a non-commissioned officer in the early 90s. She began as a special assistant to Eric at the 1632 website. I should mention, if nobody knows, there's this huge community of people who write within the uh, Ring of Fire universe. Um, and you can find that at 1632.org. Uh, she eventually wrote an important sequence of the storyline of 1634, The Ram Rebellion. She's the editor of the Grantville Gazettes, um, several of them, and chairs the 1632 editorial board. Additionally, Paula is assistant editor of the Easing Jim Baines Universe. Um, well, are we you putting that, that out? Was. was, yes. Okay. <laughs> Paula mainly at the moment writes in tandem with, with Gorg and Gorg Huff is a Texas citizen who has uh, moved to points north. Um, he uh, enthusiastically helped in researching in 1632 series backgrounds, uh, then wrote numerous stories for the Grantville Gazettes and contributed maps and drawings for the Bavarian crisis and uh, teamed up with Paula and you guys started writing 1632 novels that are, I think, very delightful. All of all of your and Eric and you two's collaborations are have a lightness and wonderfulness to the prose. You guys are really, um, you, you did the Kremlin games, right? And, yeah. Yeah, that's what Kremlin I'm Kremlin games and Vulgar Rules, uh, Viennese Waltz, and... Uh, We've got a, another series we published through Ring of Fire Press, Demons of Paris and Demons of Constantinople, and we've got a third book underway. Well, out now. Got, uh, look, go ahead, Gorg. You want to? Uh, then we've also, Paul and I also have the uh, Star Wings series, which is a space opera that has that includes Pandora's crew, Arachne's web and the Rat Rebellion, and it is trade ships, war, revolution, and deep space combat in uh, the Pamplona sector of the explored galaxy. Is that available at Ring of Fire, from Ring of Fire Press? That's available from Ring of Fire okay. Press. So we probably, we have it on the Bane website as brief. Uh, you've got Pandora's crew. Yeah, actually, I think you've got all three of them. Uh, available on the, uh, the Bang website. Excellent. There's also the Warspell series, which I'm not sure how many you've got because I haven't caught up. I think you've got the Vampiris of Londinium, but I'm not sure if you've got the original uh, Merge World or the um, other one, uh, or Space Race. No, I think you've got Space Race. Space Race just came out, so you probably don't have that. I need to put that up on your site because I'm running behind. Uh, and then there's Lieutenant Teasdale, which Eric just bought, uh, which is basically a hornblower, a female hornblower in a magic world. Yeah. Nobody's ever tried to adapt hornblower into a female science fiction character before Wait, no, oh, they, no. yeah. <laughs> <Not> really <laughs> all right all right um out now at booksellers everywhere is this uh the macedonian hazard by eric flint gorkhoff and paula goodlett um we have on the cover that it's a ring of fire novel because it uh it, it's all right you're gonna maybe just Let's dive into it. Why is it a Ring of Fire novel? Um, 
or related novel. Um, let's see. We find ourselves in 400 BC, uh, which is not 1632. What has happened? Where are we? Um, set up this uh, this world for us. Okay. Well, the way it got started was uh, years ago. A number of us, uh, Paul and I, and uh, I think you were both on that cruise. Pretty yes. sure you were. Uh, a number of other people back there around 1632, you know, she wound up on a cruise in the Caribbean, and I can't remember why. But uh, I should have forgotten what the occasion was. But anyway, we're on this cruise ship, and we, uh, um, we docked. It was in the... Uh, uh, in the Bahamas. So it's probably one of Shahid Mahmoud's training uh, sessions, probably. I think that's what it was. Uh, Shahid is uh, the publisher of uh, Art Manor Books, and for a while he was doing a, um, uh, uh, it's called The Sale to Success. It was a writing seminar that was done on a, on a, um, a cruise ship to the Bahamas. Anyway, we wound up and we had one day to kill on um, this one island where we rented a great big tent and we just wound up talking. And I had had the idea for a while that a cruise ship would make a really nifty venue for some kind of altered history story. The problem I had was figuring out how you'd keep the the ship going. Uh, and what happened was some of the people there, uh, Rick, Boatwright, Wallboys, were knew more about technical stuff than I do. And what they pointed out was that very soon, it hasn't happened yet, but we're on the verge of it. Uh, these kind of ships are going to start having what they call flex fuel engines, where they can pretty much burn almost anything. Um, you know, petroleum will burn best, but you can burn alcohol, other fuel sources. Yeah. And once you got that, then you could have a cruise ship that you could keep it running for a very long time, not forever, obviously, but for a very long time. So that's where the idea came from. And then we, we kicked around that day, basic ideas for the plot. And, and when we got back, the three of us were gonna be the ones who did right. And we started developing a plot. And what came out of that was the first novel in the series, The Alexander Inheritance. And the reason for the title is that the setting, uh, the cruise ship is transposed in time and place about two years after the death of Alexander the Great. Uh, and this was an era in history known uh, to historians as the age of the diadochi, which is the Greek word means successors. And it was the period lasted about 50 years after the death of Alexander. And it was a period of history that kind of makes Game of Thrones look pretty tame. Um, by the time, because Alexander had no established heir. So by the time it was all over, every single member of Alexander's family had been murdered. Uh, and of the roughly 50 generals who started the fighting, three of them wound up coming out on top of the end. Ptolemy, uh, Seleucus, and uh, uh, um, blanking board, uh, the guy in Macedonia. Um, um, Cassander. I'm trying to remember who it was. It was a Cassander. Yeah. In any three of them survived, and um, it was really makes for a great period to write the kind of stories we write. So, the, just to finish, the, what I found particularly intriguing and attractive about the story was that we could not have anything like a 1632 plot line um, because the situation is so completely different. Um, in 1632, you transpose an entire town 
with its resources. And in the Alexander hands, the transplanted ship that actually had more people in it than the town of Grandpa. But for anybody who's ever been on a cruise, huge percentage of them are old, elderly. Uh, they often know a lot, but they're creaky. Um, on the other hand, the crew tends to be very young, but on the but the crew is also multinational. I mean, you'll find people from all over the world there. So it, it wasn't the kind of thing where you could have the same sort of, of political military solution that they were able to adopt in the 1632. So we had to come up with something completely different, and um, which we did. And um, May Sidonian Hazard is the second book in the series. And there will be for sure at least one more because there is a, a very bad fellow uh, at the end of this book um, who, who needs some just desserts. <laughs> um, now, whether we will go beyond another book, I just don't know yet. We haven't really, we all have other things we're working on, so we haven't really, well, Macedonia just came out, so we, we haven't really started. Yeah. Well, I really would like to see you guys explore uh, Republican Rome. So, we would... yeah, that would be. <laughs> we are in the in the early period of Rome when the Romans are basically considered by everybody a bunch of semi-literate barbarians. Um, uh, so, yeah, that would be one way to go. And. Yeah. The Romans haven't figured much so far in the uh, in the series. It's mostly uh, focused in the Eastern Mediterranean. Well, all right. The book starts in Trinidad, not in the Mediterranean, and it starts with Stella uh, Williams. What's her last name? Um, I made it up, but I don't remember it. I've got it. <laughs> anyway. I don't remember either because she's the character that Paul. Why are we? Uh, all right. So I'll... Basically, Stella is uh, on the cruise to get her group back. Uh, but she is sort of stuck, which a lot of the characters are, which makes for a good story. She's got to come up with Matthew, a way. Matthew, her last name. Yeah. Okay. Of making, of remaking her world, which most of the most of the passengers do. I mean, most of the passengers on this cruise ship, uh, aside from the very old who are just going to croak, uh, are going to have to rebuild their world and find new ways of making a living, new occupations. This is. A lot, and in this way, it is a lot like the 1632 universe because there are there's the potential for thousands of different stories by by different authors that uh, just right there in New America, and at the same time, with the introduction of the radio stations and the communications network, you've got an end to as you mentioned the Roman Republic to Alexandria, to Carthage, uh, to other places around the Mediterranean. And uh, you've got all these people who can introduce you to all, all the whole Europe, all of Europe at that time. So there's a lot of room for a lot of stories. Uh, one of the things that, that happens in the preceding book, Alexander is, is they've got this cruise ship. If anybody who's been on a cruise knows it's a very peculiar demographics because the passengers tend to be prosperous and they couldn't afford to go on it. Uh, tend to be middle-aged or older, although that's less so in the Caribbean than some other cruises, but still, even in the Caribbean cruise, it's, uh, um, you got a lot of retired. It's not a bunch of teeny boppers. Yeah, it's not a bunch of teeny boppers. And what happens is that once they realize what's happening, um, one of the things they realize is they can't just 
lug these old folks around. So they find a place where they can create a colony. And what they do, because they've got a ship that can sail it, they go across the Atlantic and they create a colony in the island of Trinidad. And the reason they do that, and this is one way in which there's quite a bit of difference in 1632, the, the town of Granville gets, in 1632, gets plunked down in the middle of Europe in the middle of the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century. This is the, actually pretty advanced society, whereas um, we are two centuries, three centuries before the birth of Christ in the New World. And this is pre-Mayan, pre, I think it's even pre-Olmec. I mean, you know, this is- yeah, it's post-Olmec, but pre-Mayan. Is it post-Olmec? Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, so the point being that with the resources they have, they can create a colony on Trinidad that can defend itself. Um, because there is a native population, but that, you know, they can defend itself, which they could not do if they tried to create it in Europe. So anyway, that's why it starts in Trinidad, because um, not the first one, but this one. Is there um, also, it strikes me as there's oil there, right? Is that? Yeah, that's the reason yeah. they put it in that's Trinidad. That's the reason they picked Trinidad. Yeah. That and the fact that Trinidad's an island, so they've got some, a certain amount of natural defense. Right because of the fact that Trinidad is an island with miles of different distance between it and the mainland. So, so they can, so the ship can come and get refueled there. Right, yep. And it can be, it can be a base of the uh, political base for the ship. It can be a political base. Also, Trinidad turns out to be sort of like the, a very early version of OPEC because they've got these oil wells and they've got, and now there's suddenly the, Demand for oil not is not just the queen of the sea. It's got demand for oil, but you introduce you start introducing steamship, which they do in Europe, and also and a steamship works better on oil than it does on coal or wood, because you've got more control over the flame, more control over the heat, more control over the system in general. And it also burns a bit cleaner, so there's not as lot much ash and less maintenance needed for the ship. So yeah, there's the people on Trinidad with the, the oil fields in Trinidad, the new American colonies, they're, uh, the biggest part of their income is from the oil fields. Mm -hmm. And there was an oil tender that got thrown back yeah. with them, right? Uh, yeah, there were really two ships that came back. There was a cruise ship but when the, the, the time transposition happened, they were actually docked um, and they were getting um, a whole new load of fuel being pumped aboard from a fuel tanker. And so the fuel tanker comes with them. And the reason that's important is that tanker is quite capable of sailing. I mean, it's an ocean going vessel. So it's capable of sailing across or steaming across the Atlantic. So that gives them actually two ships. Now I said that there was there was a political connection, but New Trinidad and the Queen of the Sea are not politically um, joined at the hip no. at all. No. no, they're actually two separate. No, they they agree when they set up Trinidad that it's an independent colony. It's it's um, it's mostly Americans because of, of the crew of the not the crew but the. Um, the passengers so it's predominantly an american population uh the guy winds up getting himself elected um as uh, i forgot the title again what uh president uh, president, president of the new america al wiley al wiley is the uh is a congressman from utah right he, and, yeah he's a congressman from utah uh we were Originally, Paula and I were going to make him a congressman from Georgia, but Eric moved him to Utah. Uh, and uh, he is uh, pretty heavily conservative by modern standards. And the captain of the cruise ship, Lars uh, Floden, I think it was, Floden, yeah. Uh, yeah. is actually is from Scandinavia and is by American standards, very liberal. But uh, 
you put them back in the third century BC and they're both screaming liberals, they're slightly different, but considering that they both are opposed to chattel slavery, they're crazy liberal by the standards of Europe in the uh, third century BC. And by the standards of the tribes in America, the so-called civil, that their uh, opposition to human sacrifice is a crazy okay. liberal note. It's crazy, those crazy um, heritage. Yeah. So yeah. need your bleeding heart liberal. Yeah. Uh, this is a theme that goes through the book a lot, which is that there's just slavery everywhere, and it's economically very difficult to get rid of. Um, yeah. What is uh, so? Let's take it from Stella's point of view. Um, what, what is Stella what? trying to do, and what? And and she she hooked up with um a fellow. Yeah, Stella is Carthalo. looking. Yeah, looking to become a glassmaker, and she has the knowledge but not the skill. And there's a big difference between having the knowledge of how to do something. I know how to do a lot of stuff and not and having the skill, the lack of skill can have consequences. <laughs> uh, so Stella is forced into something that she would before the, the trip would never have considered. She buys an indentured servant and they are forced, the colony in Trinidad is essentially enforced to accept the concept of indenture because that's essentially the only way that they can get the, the skill base that they need to support their knowledge base. And Stella is an example of that, not the only example. Yeah, but, but she doesn't just, I mean, she here. buys a slave and makes him an indentured servant. Right. He's she been a slave since he was six, right? He, right. He was a slave in Constantinople and was about to be an executed slave in Constantinople. And Stella buys him. And because of the laws, she couldn't buy him as a slave, not that she wanted, but she buys him as an indentured servant with, I believe, an eight-year contract of indenture that can be decreased by him She's got to pay him actually a salary. So it's not just like a straight indenture. Aside from uh, the uh, paying off, buying from, aside from the price of buying him, she's also got to pay him sort of half his wages as wages, and the other half goes to pay her back for buying his freedom, is the way the contract works. Uh, or at least that's how I remember it. Mm -hmm. We wrote this book four years ago. And she's a, um, and the reason she needs his labor is because she's trying to become a glassmaker. Right, which she does. And he is a glassmaker. And he is a good glassmaker. Uh, it wasn't his fault that the asshole got in his way and went into the, the vat of burning uh, of liquid glass. But the asshole was noble and he was a slave. So he was about, he was in a great deal of trouble. Uh, the basically the only reason he survived is because uh, the uh, the ship people uh, offered uh, quite a bit of money for him, and uh, ship people money is very good money because you can buy things with it that you cannot get with any other sort of currency, including. Machine-made tools from the Queen of the Sea, which are have an accuracy and uh, materials that just wasn't available in third century BC before the Queen of the Sea arrived. Well, can we talk about? Let's talk about the geopolitical situation a little bit. Maybe talk about the character Eumenes and uh, what is he up to? What is going on with that? That's well, a major portion of the book. The basic political framework, and this is what, leave aside the colony, the primarily American colony of Trinidad, and that leaves the, the ship itself, Queen of the Sea, which has its own, it's making money engaged in trade, but, but 
the Queen of Sea is in a position to do something unique in human history, um, which is that it can provide people, leaders in particular, political leaders, with an absolutely secure an impregnable place from which they can situate themselves because it is impossible for anybody at the time to seize the queen of the sea. And, and we saw that. People try it and it's like, yeah. oh, really, inheritance. I mean, and then when they realize just exactly how much power an enormous cruise ship has, and this is an enormous ship. Uh, so the point is that people can come to the ship and they have to agree to certain provisions, uh, you know, so they're under ship discipline, but they can get themselves a cabin, uh, emperors and kings and whatnot, and they're safe. Um, and a whole bunch of, so it's a place where, where, where people can go get refuge and it makes it possible it's kind of like a United Nations on the water that, except that, that you really are secure there. And what that enables them to do is try to keep the Alexander's empire from, from disintegrating, uh, which is what happened in real history, that's what happened. And, and the opinion of the, the uptimers, the modern people on the ship is that whatever problems and injustices the Alexandrian Empire had, and it had plenty. It's still better, way better, in fact, than the, the, the sheer chaos and, and loss of life that was involved in the endless warfare that went on for, for 50 years during that period. So they're able to stabilize the situation, kind of. I mean, the can't I'd say that they do better than that in some ways, Eric. They do better than just stabilizing. Yeah, I agree. No, I agree. Because the other thing, yeah, I should also add, the other thing the Queen of the Sea is, it's also the world's greatest university. And, and they run it that way too. So all kinds of people, they can afford it or have someone sponsor can come aboard the, crew, uh, the Queen of the Sea and learn. I mean, no, it's just, it's, so it's a combination university, sort of the United Nations and an impregnable fortress as long as it can stay out in the water so that nobody can really mess with it. And, and that's the dynamic that we work with. And it's, uh, I enjoy it because it's a completely different dynamic than what you have in the situation. It's completely different. Um, the, the heroes have a lot of influence, but they don't have the kind of direct power yeah. that, you know, that they- And you means, back to you means there. Why did you pick him out to be um, sort of uh, our general that we are following? He's the most attractive. If you look at the real generals, he was, he was Greek, first of all. He was not Macedonian, which made him kind of an outcast. But um, it also meant that he just, for whatever reason, didn't seem to have the personal ambition that that all he the was other an honorable man. Yeah, more than any yeah. of the rest of them. Yeah, you means was deeply and profoundly honorable and dedicated to doing his job and keeping his oath. He did not betray the people who brought him. Uh, this is the the primary characteristic of humans. And he, he was the mainstay of uh, basically the Alexandrian empire and the royal family uh, as long as he lived in, in, in real history. And they didn't actually get killed till after Eumenes got defeated. As long as he was out there in the field, they stayed alive. Uh, and, and that's in our in our history, not in, in, not in the book. Uh, no, it's true in the book too. But you means was the was that one honest man among the bunch of them. He was not ruled by ambition. He wasn't ruled by seeking for power. He was 
loyal and honest in doing his job. Yeah. Now, um, his big task in the book, well, he's got several, but but one of them is to, uh, he's trying to to take out these other um, upstarts and, and the split heirs and everything, but he needs to cross the Strait of Bosphorus. Yeah. Um, and the uh, the way that um, y'all work out that 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 he attempts that is really cool. Can you talk about? I don't want to give anything away, but can you talk a little bit about what? Controversies uh, well, aren't aren't new to modern standards, but they were very new to that period. Mm. Though they did have boats, they did have road foot over boats, and what they did was they had a few extra tricks and. One of them was that they used lighter materials because they knew how to do a composite material. But, uh, and I don't want to give away too many things either. Well, it's put it this way. All right. So it's like what seven football fields ac across to there, or uh, yeah, I, something like that. And, and that's at the narrow, about the narrowest part. That's yeah, and you've got a big old army gathered on the other side trying to stop you if you happen to want to put a bridge across right. um, and so the uh uh yes there how do you get rid of them mostly built and the enemy really comes up to the shore to force them back they get a little surprised that yeah. you're gonna have to buy the book to find out about indeed it. indeed and that's that's a fun part of the book the <laughs> it is yeah, well there are and, they, and it's true of the 1632 series also, but the, the, the technological gap in the 1632 series between 17th century people and modern people is way, way smaller than, than it is, you know, more than 2,000 years ago. So there are things that, one of the things that happens in the first book is that that the the, the cruise ship, you know, it's not a warship, it's it, you know, so they have to improvise everything. But one of the things they're able to do because of the immense power of the engines is they create steam cannons. And right. these things are just, you know, the people of the time just 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 right. you know the steam cannon isn't practical without something like the engines of a cruise ship or a battleship. It's not practical, uh, just that you don't put a pot of boiling water, over, a kettle of boiling water over a wood fire and get a steam cannon. You've got to have very hot, very high pressure steam. And it's actually tremendously easier in other circumstances, tremendously easier to make a, gun, a black powder cannon than it is to make a steam cannon. But if you happen to have a cruise ship that's already producing massive amounts of steam and you've got piping systems because you're, you're ship, shipping uh, heat all over the ship, uh, then making a steam cannon becomes a very practical tool. Uh, but nobody else can do it and nobody else can produce it. At this point, even producing cannons is very difficult for anybody outside the ship people. And the ship people include both the people on the Queen of the Sea and the people on the, what was it? The Reliant? Yeah, the Reliant. That's the oil tender. That's, yeah. Um, well, so, and that, that disparity in technology can work both ways too, as, as our heroes in Trinidad discover when they come into contact with indigenous populations that have poison blowguns. Yeah. And and they discover, oh wow, because that, you know, they have no defense against the poison. So for the you know the yeah. um so it they've got to innovate. Yeah, yeah. It's it's you know, it's a lot of fun. It's really is. Necessity is the mother of invention, and that way, those blow darts were a bad mother. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, well, Stella's um, I mean that you feel, you know, this woman's in her in her sixties, I think. Um, Actually, she's in her late 
40s, I think. Late 40s. 40s. But yeah. I mean, you know, it's like ancient for this time. And yeah. uh, and and she's she's on the verge of of um not being able to make a living and and dying if she doesn't want yeah. there's the, the the stakes are way higher than they are here and people oh, yeah. have their you know they're trying to figure out how to make diabetes medicine and stuff well let's all right so speaking of poison let's talk about the other big plot is there a little mystery that's running through the book as well um tell us about olympia um who she is <laughs> what the heck is going on with with her she is a Olympia, Olympia was Alexander the Great's mother, and and she really a character in history. And I mean, and what what happens at the end of the first book, uh, the Alexander inheritance, is that she has to take on a lamb. And the very end of the book, she arrives at the Queen of the Sea and wants um, and wants asylum, and her daughter-in-law Roxanne who is who was Alexander's widow <laughs> tells her new boyfriend don't let her on the ship that is the most evil person in the whole world should kill us all um and and she is in fact an extraordinarily skilled experienced and talented poison and one of the things that happens is somebody on the ship gets poisoned and she naturally is the one who everyone suspects of doing it, which deeply offends her because the person didn't die, and if she'd done it, he'd be a dead. Man. Um, but it's she's a lot of fun. I, I've yeah. got to say that that there are a lot of female characters that are really, really. I mean, you know, Eurydice is another one, and and these people are quite true to life. I mean, you know. Anybody who has any idea that, that women at time were shy and I've got to say something in Olympia's defense. Okay. Somebody's got to defend Olympia at least a little bit. At the time, the standard of goodness was how tough a bastard are you? That was pretty much the only standard of goodness. There wasn't a lot of how noble are you? Do you care about those weaker than yourself? Basically, the standard uh, the standard of nobility was: Are you tough enough to go take somebody else's good? It was from Game of Thrones. It was the iron price that they respected, not the gold price. And Olympia lived in that world. She grew up in that world to survive as a female in that world. You had to be a crazy bitch. You really did. There was no other way. She's kind of a, I mean, the, she's shaman-like in a way. Yeah. And I don't think yeah. she's a crazy bitch in so much as that she sort of has been taken over by her own conception of herself as, as sort of a force of nature or something like that. Yeah. So she's the gods. Is she, uh, and the idea that she really believes the, in, the god she worships and oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. as it, much it, as it really oppresses because a lot of the cruciate things you know it's like all this polytheism they didn't really think that but they did really think that right yeah they did they 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 believed and in I their god also, yeah back to the crazy bitch part <laughs> in our world it was Olympias who actually murdered roxanne so. Yeah, and she forced Eurydice to commit suicide in our world. Um, and killed Philip. And, and yeah, and, and right. Um, so yeah, she's basically the one who took out the whole family. Well, took out a good chunk of it. Um, um, Eurydice, who's the young, I've forgotten exactly her position in the dynasty. Um, she's a cousin uh, of the family. Yeah, that's um, yeah. No, she's yeah, she's part of it, but but one sort of step removed. Anyway, she winds up. Um, 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 she's married to Alexander's half brother. He's a half brother, I think, right? Uh, yes, yeah, he's a half brother. Yeah, he's a half brother, and and he's got um, uh, mental 
he's mentally ill, but he, he, he's not, um, he's not crazy. He just, you know, he's got problems, but and she gets very attached to him. But the thing about Eurydice, in, and this is true in real history. I mean, this, she was young. I mean, she was a teenager. She was utterly fearless. I mean, just, just, yeah. She was just kind of a force of nature. This this girl was just ferocious. Uh, she wound up. It's amazing how much she accomplished. She wound up eventually dying because Olympia. Uh, I forgot the details of real history, but she got captured the second she was forced to commit suicide. Um, but um, and the character of Roxanne, who's a very different kind of woman, is another major character in the series of Alexander's Widow. And, and these are just great characters to work with. Um, they are. Um, yeah, they are. These know, are great characters. They're fun. You know, and uh, the, a lot of the male characters are too, but in particular part. Yeah. Well, the, also the uh, Ptolemy, who's the, uh, the ruler of Egypt, I guess this is when the Greeks ruled Egypt. Uh, yeah. yeah, actually, that's the beginning of it. He's, Alexander conquered Egypt. Ptolemy was a member of, was one of his best generals. And was basically put in charge of Egypt by Alexander, and then confirmed in it by the council after Alexander died. Uh, and he, the, he's basically got a an advisor who he leans on, who is uh, also his girlfriend, right? Um, yeah, fine. right. Professionally, technically, she's a slave. Um, well, she started as a slave, but she grew. Actually, she she's not a slave anymore. Yeah. Um, she is a Hatera, and which is a professional entertainer. And um, but she's also it was the highest rank that a woman could reach. Uh, and it was a rank, and it was the only rank that allowed a woman to own her own property and manage her own affairs. And she is. One, she was actually historically one of Alexander's advisors on while he was out conquering the world. He was, she was one of those people that went along with Alexander and gave him advice, gave him counsel while he was conquering the world along with the rest of the generals. And when the, uh, Alexander, when the empire started breaking up, Ptolemy, who was very attached to her, had a couple of children by her. And um, in our history, basically loved her, but had to put her aside for political for a political marriage. In the new timeline, it's a safe bet that she's going to end up the queen of Egypt. In real history, Ptolemy was one of the three successors who came out of it. Right. Uh, and, and, and he founded the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt, which ruled for another several right. hundred years. The last until Cleopatra. Ptolemy, yeah, the last Ptolemy was Cleopatra. Yeah. Um was and, Julius Caesar Cleopatra. They were pretty much all Cleopatra. Yeah. So yeah. it was this kind of Macedonian dynasty that ruled Egypt is what it amounts to. So yeah, there are a lot of capable people. Yeah. So, uh, who are the bad guys? Uh, the uh, Eumenes is is fighting first. There's two really kind of evil fellows. There, yeah, there were a number of them. We killed off several in the first book, but there but there are two really big ones in this book. The son. What was his name again, Paula? Cassander. 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 And then Cassander is. The real snake in the grass. It is actually entirely possible that he did, in fact, contrib contribute to the death of Alexander the Great, that he poisoned him with a disease that was carried in the hoof of an animal as a sort of a petri dish and then put in Alexander's food to produce, to make him sick and, and eventually kill him. And he did that because Alexander hated his whole family. Alexander the Great positively despised uh, what was Ante Antipater? Yeah, Antipater yeah. was the old man. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. Antipater was basically a traitor to Alexander the Great, uh, who he'd who'd been left in charge of Macedonia and had done a bunch of things that Alexander had specifically told him not to and was looking at execution. So he sent his sons, and this is quite possibly what happened in the real world, but it's nobody can prove it at this late day, one way or the other, sent his sons to kill Alexander. This did happen in our universe and may have happened in the, in the real universe. Uh, but Cassander is a nasty piece of work. He's all about Cassander and nobody else perfectly willing to sacrifice his brothers, his father, anybody. And a personal physical coward to go with the rest of it. Whereas the other one eye, which is going down in the next book. Yeah, as opposed to a chicken as one eye, who is even nastier, but at least is not a personal physical coward. Yeah, actually, cowardice was not a common trait. I mean, whatever else you want to say about yeah, the time, they typically were not cowards at all. Um, the other bad guy is is Antigonus One-Eye, who is a real, I mean, he's, he was a real character in history, and quite a fascinating guy. And he's a bit different. He's not a snake in the grass. He's just ambitious and very brutal. Um, and yeah, more a wild boar. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's just, yeah. Um, and he survives the end of this book. Um, You're going to have to deal with that fellow. Yeah, he, he, he does very bad things at the end of the book. What? Uh, and and uh, readers, I know, because we're getting reactions, are, you know, kind of like, he needs... <laughs> To get the birds, and uh, we, we will do so. Uh, yeah, once we get a contract to write the next book, <laughs> okay, then we will. And then we will. That Antigonus one eyes is uh, sitting yeah. there in fictional land killing people. We need to get rid of him. Um, so, uh, one other uh, aspect of the book that a big subplot and one that's that's I find you know very fascinating is what the ship is going to do. What are they? What's Lars um, flooding and his people? Um, what are they up to? What is their mission going to be? What did they decide in this? This, well, I mean, what are some of the things they think about um, as we get going? Bring civilization, or at least the opportunity of civilization to the ancient world, to the whole world. Ancient world. I think that's what I thought they were going to do. What about you, Eric? Uh oh, I think I froze up. Hey, your voice is breaking up a little bit. We're having some slow internet thing going on. Yeah. Hold on, just maybe it'll correct itself. Basically, what the Queen of the Sea is trying to do, as much as possible, to kind of circle. But, you know, partly it's their function as a university, not just simply keeping people physics and chemistry and that stuff. I mean, a lot of it is advancing, a, you know, a new ideas of different ideology. And it's not as if people didn't pay attention to this. I mean, don't forget it. Um, Aristotle just died, um, um, and Plato wasn't that far back. So, I mean, this is a period. It's not that people weren't thinking about or listening to new ideas. And the one great advantage that the that the Queen of the Sea has, well, first of all, from the future, which gives it a lot of prestige, we'll say. Um, but the other thing, and 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 we we views this all through the story is that ship is just goddamn impregnable. I mean, it's as if you kind of have gods of Olympus. I mean, they're not gods, but you know, if, if you're somebody who's mad at them, you, you know, well, you can stare at that ship all you want, but you know, 
you're not going to get to it. And that means they have to keep dealing with one way or another. Um, there is a, a weakness exposed in that it's theoretically, if they try to go around Africa, they could run out of fuel and they need. Yeah. yeah. And Ptolemy realizes, or at least his advisor realizes yeah. this as well. Yeah, although, yes, you're right. Although they do have another ship. So, I mean, you know, they, they, if worse came to worse, they could probably get around it. But yeah, it would be a real problem. They have to be careful about that. Um, eventually, they'll have to build more fueling stations because right now they've got Trinidad and they've got, you know, a few others. But uh, even with less fuel engines, you still need to get some kind of fuel. Um, um, so yes, you're right. It's, yeah. So they, they we, we we do. Would it be uh, would it be uh, a spoiler if I told uh, about where they put their fueling station? Where they put what? The fuel station. Oh, oh no, I don't think so. I mean, you know, okay, well, they put a fuel station on Madagascar. Yeah, Madagascar in this period is not inhabited, at least so far as we know for sure. Anyone's been able to determine. I mean, archaeologists have never been able to find human settlements of Madagascar in this area. So, so Ptolemy is putting a fuel station at the, the mouth of the Adriatic Sea, and uh, our guys are putting a fuel station on Madagascar. So, that's that, those fuel stations there are going to increase the queen's range, which is going to be a factor in the next book. Now, that's not much of a factor in this book, but it will play a role. It's yeah. going to have to play a role in the next book, both in regards to how far they can go and in regards to how things work out for uh, Antigonus One-Eye. Mm -hmm. Because part of his security was the fact that they couldn't get all the way around the horn of africa with a bunch of extra fuel but with they but if they've got a fueling station at the mouth of the adriatic and at the and on madagascar madagascar that changes things adriatic and it opens up the far east um yeah well the thing that they will run into next it will be in here um, because they're already around the Horn of Africa and they're just across the Arabian Sea. And India in this period, I, I, I believe the Gupta empires are in existence, if I remember. I wait, uh, be the Mauryan Empire probably. Um, but India is already uh, really up and going concern. In fact, Alexander was not able to conquer India. He tried, but you know, he just couldn't do it. Um, it has been figured so far in the story, but it's sitting there. Um, China's also up and running. That's pretty far out. Um, um, you know, the distance, the distances involved are pretty huge at this point. But yeah, the Chinese dynasty, the first Chinese dynasty, uh, the Qin dynasty, not quite started yet, uh, but it's on the horizon. Um, and, and China's already civilized. Yeah. Well, it's a vast and rich tapestry. Is there anything else we need to want to say about the book? Um, we haven't. It was a lot of fun to write. Yeah. Yeah. There uh, really are good novels. I mean, honestly, I'm not, obviously, they have a vested interest in getting people to buy them, but. Um, we're proud of these books and we enjoy working on um, and it's it's um, it's a storyline that that and you find anywhere else. I mean it's it's there's not much overlap with other alter histories more time. And in my opinion, it is as open to other stories and other writers as the 1632 universe is. I really think that. I really think that it's as suitable for having other people come and playing that universe as the 1632 universe is. Well, it certainly leaves you thinking um, about all the all the the.
different uh, possibilities. Uh, just uh, it opens up an area of your imagination after you finish reading it that you think, well, what, what, what could this be and what could that be? It's wonderful stuff. Um, all right. Well, thank you. Uh, this is the book. It is called The Macedonian Hazard by Eric Flint, Gorg Huff, and Paula Goodlett. And Eric, Gorg, and Paula, thank you so much for talking with us about it today. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having us. All right. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Salarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising Courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. System Defense HQ, City of Columbia, Beowulf, Beowulf System. Take that, bastards! Corey McAvoy snarled viciously as the block ship impeller wedges came up. A lot of those freighters weren't going to survive the next few seconds, and he knew it. But they didn't have to survive to do their jobs. And in the meantime, Holman Sanders and Alice Truman had left almost 500 lakhs behind when TF-32 headed off to the terminus. Only about half of them were close enough to intervene in the attack, and even they had poor countermissile solutions by and large. But they also had a lot of CMs and no reason to conserve them, and McAvoy watched them streak across the display, chewing into the Sully missile stream. Their interception angle was bad, coming in from the side rather than the head-on approach, which gave countermissiles their best intercept percentages. Considering all their disadvantages, they did quite well, but over 700 of the Asta final stages got by them. They tore down upon the block ships, but those block ships had no more investment in their personal survival than SBQ-12 or the Astas themselves. They simply obeyed the remote commands, brought up their wedges, and rolled ship. They weren't perfectly placed, because the damned Sollies had suckered them, and everyone had expected the attack to fall on Cassandra. But the defenders had known the threat axis, and that meant the block ships were in roughly the right spots to form their curved defensive shield wall when McAvoy brought them online. And that there had been no time or way for Liang Tao Rutgers to update his attack missile's profiles to avoid them. At least a dozen of them protected every one of the Asta's targets. Two dozen of them guarded each of Avaldi's most critical installations and the major habitats. And as they rolled ship, bringing their wedges perpendicular to the Asta's approach, they built a wall in space. Not a single wall, but a series of them. Individual shields, impeller wedges twice as wide as usual as their nodes were ruinously overloaded, stacked in a protective cup around their charges. Now the surviving Astas reached attack range. Their AIs were the most capable any Solarian missile had ever carried. The men and women who'd programmed their attack profiles hadn't anticipated the block ships, but they'd been very clear about what did and did not constitute legitimate targets. The AIs noted that all of those legitimate targets had disappeared, and their vectors altered abruptly as they scattered, dodging wildly in their efforts to avoid the obstacles in their path and reacquire their targets. Most of them failed. Unable to clear the barricading impeller wedges before impact, and precluded from choosing alternate targets by targeting commands designed to avoid strikes on the Beowulf habitats. They didn't even fire on the block ships. They simply rammed into those wedges and disappeared forever. But not all of them did. Corey McAvoy swore viciously as he discovered that roughly the right places wasn't good enough against Asta. His eyes widened incredulously as half a dozen of them squirmed through a chink around Evaldi of Beowulf's number two nano farm. There was no point defense, no sidewall inside the block ships, 
and the nano farm simply disintegrated. Entire modules shattered or went spinning off from the vortex of destruction. And then one of the central power plants exploded and wiped the entire platform and all 5,000 workers aboard it from the face of the universe. Nano farm number one took at least one hit of its own, but that was peripheral. The damage was nothing to sneer at, but it should be easily repaired, and it was unlikely to significantly impact the facility's production rate. Far more important to McAvoy at the moment, less than 100 of its personnel were killed. And that was it. Not a single hit got through to the missile production lines. Well done, everyone, Gabriel Cadell Markham said from McAvoy's comm display. Well done! That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a nosegay of aspirin tree leaves and acacia nuts and magic uptime sniffles ending Kleenex plus thanks, praise, and gratitude to Eric Flint, Gorg Huff, and Paula Goodlett, authors of The Macedonian Hazard. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. 